0: As we're talking through all of it, like through my career history, I feel like a major theme is luck. Like maybe anyone listening to this is thinking, gosh, this woman got so lucky all these times throughout her career. And I absolutely agree. I did get lucky, but I also set myself up for that.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Nonlinear, a podcast about the decisions that shape our careers. I'm Dave Fano, the founder and CEO of Teal and the host of this show. If you're enjoying the conversation on this episode, please make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. It really helps shine a light on these amazing careers and increases the chances of us learning from each other. Again, thank you so much and let's jump into this amazing career story. Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today we are with Amanda Natividad, who I am a huge, huge fan of. I'm actually, I can't believe she's on the podcast i sort of wrote as a twitter dm and she said yes which i think was in line with how nice i assumed she was so i'm super excited to have this conversation but amanda it'd be great to hear directly from you a little bit about yourself
0: how nice you assumed i was (laughs) oh little did you know uh uh, yes a little bit about me i have pivoted careers a bunch of times I started out as a tech news journalist, mostly in the behind-the-scenes type of role as an editor, editor slash producer. Um, also then got to pivot into working in test kitchens. So I went to culinary school, worked as a sort of prep cook, and worked in test kitchens for a little bit, and then got into marketing. So my, I've, I've been a marketer for, you know, I think like nine years or so now. Got my start in marketing by way of content, and that's sort of, you know, my main kind of my main area of expertise, content and sort of brand and PR.
1: Awesome. I'm excited to dive into it and particularly the test kitchens part has some questions around that. Well, cool. Let's uh, let's kick it off. We like to start with asking the same question, which is when was it in your life that you started to think more intentionally about your career? And what I mean by that is like the actions you were taking you were being a bit more deliberate about them sort of providing for you in life versus like, you know, my daughter wants to be a vet, but I'm not sure she's thinking about the paycheck that comes with that. You know, actually, she wants to be a YouTuber right now. So
0: <laughs> Good for her. She should do that. <laughs>
1: I know, right? So when was, when was that and kind of what was it that, that you were thinking you'd do?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think I've always been intentional about my career. It probably it, – it just – that intentionality has changed A bunch of times over the years. So, what I mean by that is, I started thinking about my career probably as early as a senior in high school. So, at that time, so when I was in high school, I was just starting to think about, sorry, let me revise here. So, when I was a junior slash senior in high school, I was thinking a lot, a lot more critically about what type of university I wanted to go to and the future that I wanted. And, you know, as we all know, getting into a good university is highly competitive. It's really, really difficult, almost impossibly so. And if you don't have the right connections, you're a little bit screwed. So I also didn't put a ton of intention into into where I was applying. So thinking about my college career or my college admission experience. So I only applied to one college when I was in high school because it was some combination of not, at the time, not caring about which university, but also kind of having an idea of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So got into that college, went to orientation, like really was maybe like four to five weeks out from starting school. Went to orientation and hated it. It was just a terrible experience. Not to say that there was anything wrong with that college. It just felt like very much like this is the wrong experience for me. And I think that was a huge learning moment because it was a time when I learned, oh, there isn't anything wrong with this or with this school or what these other people are doing. There's nothing wrong with that. This just isn't right for me. And that felt like a really crucial moment because I think when you're young, you might, because you're young or maybe immature, you might be thinking about things like, oh, that's wrong. Like, that's wrong. Like that's not the way to do things. Where I knew that it just wasn't the right situation. And it didn't feel right because for me, it felt like the same as my high school, but just a little bit bigger. Mm. And that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted something new. I wanted something different. And that was a forcing function for me. To really think about the kind of career that I wanted, what I wanted out of my college experience first, and what I wanted to learn at university, so I dropped out <laughs> and went to community college. And you know, I I don't know many years away or moved from college, so I don't know what the perception of community college is today. But you know, certainly back then there was a lot of stigma around it, right? It was, you know, it had a terrible reputation for oh, you're not smart enough to get into university, so you have to go to community college. And that was what I did as the as like the backup plan slash, you know what? I don't want to play by these traditional rules. I'm going to get into a top university by way of community college, and I'm going to save so much money doing this. Um, so that was what I did, developed a strong plan for you know, navigating the community college experience, which at the time in, you know, in California, it was really difficult. It was, and I'm sure it's still difficult across states where it's hard to know which classes are transferable, which ones to take for your right major. And I think you also learn pretty cruelly early on that contrary to people thinking that you join community college aimlessly you actually have to have your major figured out pretty early. Like, ideally by the second semester of your first year, you should know what major you want so that you can take the right classes that make you eligible to transfer. And then ended up transferring to UCLA. And from there, I, you know, majored in communication studies and was very set on having a journalism career. So I would say around the age of like 18, 19 is when I really started to be intentional about the kind of career that I wanted.
1: That's awesome. What what led you to like choosing that major? So it seems like, you know, even before going to the college, you ended up not going to, and then community college, you had a sense of English and journalism. What what do you feel like sparked that interest for you and, and knowing that that was going to be the major for you?
0: So two things. One, I have always just very much been into writing and content creation I started writing short stories when I was in kindergarten, and I think I invented email newsletters because in, in, <laughs> in sixth grade, in my, with my very fancy AOL account, I subscribed my classmates to my little newsletter that was, it was about a, a, a fake or fictional band, and it was there, it was this band's email newsletter, and really it was just an excuse to send funny memes and random wave files to be like, hey, the new single just dropped, and it was just like silly content. So I've always been some kind of creator. So that was one piece, like just knowing that I wanted to do something in, in media. The other piece was getting a good sense of, well, one, you know, I knew I wanted to go to university in California and being aware of, well, if you are going to university in California, what are the things that you can major in or you should major in that are unique to California. So in the case of UCLA, one of their I think I think it's their or at least at the time it was their most communication studies was their most popular major, which also meant it was the most competitive major even though it's like a, it's in the liberal arts college. I think you needed to have like a 3.9 GPA to get in. And that was just how it was because it was so competitive. And the other thing too was that because it's in LA, right, entertainment industries or the entertainment industry is here, then the a lot of the guest le- lecturers that I learned from were people who were movie producers and like media moguls, and that was just a really great learning experience to be you know like if you're going to go to school in l a might as well learn from people who are top of their industry in that town's industry. Does that makes sense,
1: yeah, it makes perfect sense. It was somewhat like the the local occupation in a way there was you know well, it was very strategic on your part, you know, to kind of have, like, have that awareness of the market, uh, what was there, and also align that with your interests, right? So, like, the interests and market, I think that's what makes for pretty fulfilling careers, if you can match those two together. Okay, so you graduate, well, you do community college, you go to university, um, now you're on the path that you wanted to pursue, you end up landing jobs in content, writing, what were some of the big learnings for you in those first few positions you had?
0: Yeah, I think, so, the interesting thing about the, about journalism was, I mean, I mean, there's so, there's so much about the journalism world that is not traditional or not indicative of the greater work environment, right? Like, like things like promotion cycles and stuff, they're just different in journalism. Like it isn't necessarily like you do your job well, therefore you get a promotion the next year. Sometimes it's like, no, it's your job to do, to report, you know, in this beat and do it well. That's what the job is. So it's just very different, right? So I think a lot of the learnings I had there were more in just raw skill building, like learning how to research well, learning how to fact check, learning how to, you know, help manage a website or CMS. So a lot of it was that. It wasn't until I got into marketing and more of the, you know, traditional corporate environment that I learned more about, you know, career management, right? Like how to ask for a raise, how to ask for promotion, how to manage people. That didn't come until much later.
1: So you say that first part was like focusing on your hard skills and like honing your craft and then came a pivot. So like what was it about – you know, oftentimes on the show I'll talk about these kind of like three stages or cycles that we go through of searching, transitioning, and developing. And it's really a loop. Like once we, we kind of hit a plateau on the developing and sometimes within the company we search for that next thing, we transition into it, and then we develop again. But oftentimes that development plateau results in a – bigger change, either a career pivot or changing companies. So you were doing traditional journalism for a bit and you talked about in the intro about many pivots. So what was that first moment where you're like, wait a second, maybe I need to change things up a little.
0: Yeah, it was. Yeah, I had my quarter life crisis pretty much on time. And I was just at the stage of life where I was very content with my job. I had tremendous respect for my coworkers had a lot of fun working where I worked. That you know was at GigaOm, and I you know was just super lucky to be there. It was, I loved it, but at the same time, I felt myself plateauing in journalism, or you know it, in the actual job itself, where it was sort of like I knew what I needed to do to get better or like to get to the next level, but there was just this part of me that didn't want to do it. That was like I I don't know. I don't know if this is for me. Meanwhile, my my husband then boyfriend got really into investing. And he was just super excited about it and really passionate about it and I hadn't that was sort of my first time seeing someone really truly engaged with their career, like a sort of young professional who was really engaged in their career or their, you know, what they were doing and I was like, "Oh, like I want that feeling." Like, I I didn't know that that was a real feeling that people experienced. And then that kind of caused me to do some introspection and think about, well, what would I – what's my dream career? Like, what would I want to do if I just could do whatever I wanted? And I was like, I'd want to be a chef. Like, I would love to go to culinary school, learn – like, get yelled at in French and learn (laughs) how to cook really well. Like, that was what I wanted to do. And I did just – you know, from some quick research. I, and I, I assumed that culinary school was like crazy expensive and just completely out of the question. But when I looked into it, I realized, oh, it's actually a lot cheaper, <laughs> substantially cheaper than I thought it would be. And I could take out a loan. Um, and, you know, Le Cordon Bleu, where I went, they had recently launched a newer program where it was geared towards people like me who were in career transitions, where I think their original program was like two or three, uh, two years maybe, or two or three years of, you know, in-class instruction and required internship at a restaurant or food prep place. And this new program was, was night school, and it was only one year. It was a bit of a grind, though. It was Monday through Friday, every day, being at school from like 6 to 11 p.m. So it was a lot, but... At my journalism job, I was working from home, so I didn't have to worry about a work commute and just kind of like, you know, worked at home, did that, got dressed, went to school and ended that every night. So that was sort of my realization of wanting to do something different. And as I talk about this, right, it sounds like a grind, right? You wake up at like maybe 8 a.m. for your day job, work until 5, and then drive through L.A. traffic to get to culinary school where you get yelled at and you cook and clean until 11 p.m. and then do it all over again the, same, the next day. It was a lot of work and it was, you know, physically it's a lot of work. a lot of things to do. But I realized that when you find something you're really, truly interested in, that you love doing, that you really want to learn, that that doesn't matter. Like somehow you will just summon the energy. I mean, sure, some days were harder, but by and large, I was excited to go to school every day.
1: Yeah, it's it's a funny time right now when we talk about like work-life balance and work and it's kind of like when you do that, it's expected to be like for yourself. You know, I'm kind of of the belief that all work you do is for yourself and it's like under what contractual relationship? You know, sometimes it might be a salary, sometimes it might be freelance, sometimes it might be that I run the company, but I feel like if you can find that work that charges you up and you're excited about and you see it as you growing, then the energy somehow... You know, surfaces itself.
0: Yeah, it's true. That was exactly how I felt, and I, and in that time, I. So I was going to be. Well, what I wanted to do is, I wanted to be a food writer. So I wanted to get some culinary experience, you know, develop a little bit of clout, so to speak, and then be a food writer. And so in that process, I real, I was. The plan was to do this for right, do culinary school for like a year, whatever it was, and then be fun employed while I looked for my next new thing. So while I was in school, I, you know, saved money or saved really aggressively <laughs> where I cut down my, my like, my living expenses to, what was it? I think it was like $1,000 per month. Like, that was how I lived. And I, and I lived with a roommate in, in L.A. And I, I think my portion of the rent was like $700. Oh, wow. And so the rest, so $300 a month just for my food, fun, whatever it was and i actually loved it and like, like i didn't i didn't shop for a whole year cuz i just didn't unless i needed something right but i didn't buy any anything i didn't need and i was a little bit nervous about that in the sense that i thought could i really do this but because i was so like happy and fulfilled in what i was doing it didn't really feel like i was giving up anything if anything it just sort of felt fun and a creative way to manage my finances for a year.
1: <laughs> so, uh, undoubtedly you had people that were like, "What are you doing?" Like, you have a good job at a great publication, this is what you studied. What was I mean, assuming that was the case. Like, what were what were those conversations like? Cuz I feel like that's what a lot of people struggle with wanting to make a big bet on themselves like that and feeling allowed to pursue happiness we, we could feel like a selfish act it's like you got a great job what do you need to like be happy come on no no one gets to be happy at work like what what was that conversation like when you were going on you know going on this journey of growth on culinary would you know on the surface felt like a big change from writing and journalism
0: yeah I think I think it was I don't know I mean I think I mean what you described is it is part, partly what I experienced but also partly not. I mean, where it's not is just that I think it's pretty normal for people, you know, to in their quarter, in their quarter life crisis or in that quarter life to reevaluate career decisions and be like is this what I really want to do? and i think most people are also or or people might be doubling down and starting to go to like graduate school come to think of it i think my i think my parents were like don't you want to get your mba instead and i was like no i'm going to go go to culinary school this is cool and i think it was also just you know i wasn't married i didn't have a child so it was i think i think mostly the sentiment was well you're young and single like this is kind of your last opportunity to do something kind of absurd seeming so have at it (laughs) and the other piece was just you know I I paid I paid my own way through school like I didn't didn't ask for financial help took out took out my loans and so I think it was a little bit of like well I guess you know what you're doing Mm. good luck I mean if it does and 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 I always I also was just like you know if it doesn't work out I have a great job (laughs) or like I have a good career and you know like this is – there are other people in the world who have a lot less stability and a lot less security. So I don't think that I am – I guess in the end I didn't feel like it was that much of a risk.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think it's these bets on ourselves that actually like unlock these next big moves for us. So all right. So you finish. You got yelled at by a friend chef. Then what came next?
0: That was when I started picking up some freelance work in like social media management, some copywriting, and that kind of just became, came because I was, you know, I would do some like cold outreach and, or meet friends of friends who needed a little bit of help managing their Facebook account. And I was like, I know how to do that. And this, this was like before, you know, paid social was really a thing and it was just, where social media management truly was just setting up someone's Facebook profile and doing a couple posts. So like I can do that. (laughs) So I did a little bit of that. And that ended up becoming well, after that I realized, wait a second, I'm a journalist. Like I know I'm supposed to know how to research this stuff. So then I started look I started researching well funded startups in the food space. And that was a time when, you know, the food industry or food tech was sort of an emerging scene and realized oh wait they they're all probably they're all probably hiring and i probably have skills that they probably need maybe that was kind of naive to think but i made this huge spreadsheet of different food startups and then looked up all their websites right I looked at their looked at their about pages career pages just did some research on each individual company and then sent cold emails to their contact us form or whatever publicly available email address I could find and would basically just pitch each person with like, Hey, like I look, I don't have, I don't remember what I said exactly, but it was probably some version of, Hey, I'm in a career transition. Used to be a tech journalist. Went to culinary school. Now I'm looking for my next big play in food tech or food media. Would really love to work at your company because you know, so that's something that was tailored to that company, right? That was like, love what you're doing in this space of helping, you know, helping to make office catering a lot easier. And that also helps small businesses. Like, I really love that mission. And, that, you know, that was also legitimately how I felt. And it was like, look, I don't have formal marketing experience, but. I, you know, I I can I can copyright. I know how to manage social media accounts, and I can plan events. Is there someone? Is there a role on your team where you think you might be able to use my skill set? And you know, of course, most people most people didn't reply if if they even got the email, right? But there was one company that did reply, and it was a company called Nature Box. They're a subscription snack company, and the founder Gotham Gupta, founder CEO of Gotham Gupta was like, hey, you know, we're not hiring right now, but you seem like a nice person. Why don't you stay in touch? And then we'll see what happens in the next couple months. So we did. We stayed in touch. And I met the other co-founder and CMO, Ken Chen, over coffee in Santa Monica. And we just talked about what it would be like to work together, how I might be able to help, what skills they needed. And then after about a couple of weeks, they ended up making an offer. And I was like, great, I'm in. And then I moved up to San Francisco. (laughs)
1: That's amazing. I, I feel like a lot of people get discouraged by a process like that. But, you know, I think more recently with the, the shoot your shot meme, but there's kind of something for that in a confidence and courage you need to have in doing it. But also just an understanding that that people are busy and like how are you able to stay motivated in a process like that without sort of losing steam or getting discouraged by like the lack of response or, or things like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it it and it and was hard. It was I think I believe I was job hunting, like aggressively job hunting for nine months. So, wow. like fun employed for nine months. I think what kept me going was one knowing that it was completely completely self-imposed, just mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, it was my choice to leave my journalism career. So it was that. I do think it's a lot harder if you've been laid off. And we can get to that later because I've, I've experienced that too. Um, but, so one kind of being in that position of like proactiveness or power, so to speak, and knowing like, oh, well, I caused this also kept me going was i think I think it was a little bit of just having youth on my side, like knowing okay i i'm not at least I'm not trying to support a child and trying to make things work. It's like the only person I'm responsible for is me, and if I'm not making enough money, I'm the only one who's affected so I think I think it was in its sense being very aware of the privilege of being single mm. and not beholden to another person for needing to support them and then also just realizing it's it's also a numbers game right anything is a numbers game if someone doesn't reply to me which they often didn't you know, it's it's just how it is. It's not it's not personal, right? It's not like someone receives a cold email and they hate you. It's just <laughs> right. They ignored it, what or whatever, didn't see it. It happens. I think maybe overall, I would say it was the the awareness that here's gonna be how I'd put it. I think it's the awareness that I'm not significant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you if you can kind of step outside yourself. And remember you're not the center of the world. it's a the, it's a little bit freeing, right? To know like, okay, people aren't watching your every move. No one cares. like just do your thing. <laughs> yeah, There's it's something so about true. that. Yeah, and it's, it's at, at all levels. Empowering.
1: like I you know, I've talked about this a couple times when I left WeWork, you know, I had a fairly high position there, and I was just like, mm-hmm. one, it's like, oh, what's gonna happen to all the people I work with and all these things that I you know that I think matter that I'm involved with? And then more broadly like the world's gonna notice because there was a lot happening at the time and no one batted an eye everything moved on just fine and like within a week i don't think anyone remembered who i was i was like oh right yeah okay these things just sort of move on you know and yeah. uh, businesses are these living organisms and everyone's really really busy it's really far less personal than i think we trick ourselves into believing
0: Totally. For you, was there anything that happened or didn't happen that made you realize, oh, wait, no one cares. I'm good.
1: Well, nothing broke, right? Like I would stay in touch with my friends. And in a way of like building up this importance in your mind, you're like, well, when I leave, all these things are just going to stop working because I'm so important. And you're like, nope, nope, everything's fine. Everyone (laughs) just kept suiting up and going to work, doing their thing, all the systems that were in place, whether you put them there or not. There was really smart people there. And you know their careers are on the line, so they're going to come in and do their best job, and the business will just kind of like heal. It's not even the heal because it wasn't even a wound. It just like <laughs> it just like kind of keeps going, and nothing broke. You know, you kind of like I built it up in my head of like how how much I mattered, and I'm sure like while I like like everyone at a company while they're there they matter, of course, but ultimately everyone else will you know do what they need to do to make the business successful because that's ultimately their livelihood.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like when you leave, of course, if people will – you know, when you announce you're leaving, right, people are always like, oh, gosh, what are we going to do? But like once you're out the door, that is how it is, right? People are like, well, Dave used to do this thing, but now I'm doing it. I'll figure it out.
1: Yep. Or it's like Dave was doing this thing. I don't even know we need to do it anymore, so we'll just stop and see if it breaks. And nine <laughs> out of ten times, like, I guess we didn't need to do that after all. <laughs> you're like, oh, cool. Okay. So – NatureBox. Uh, now you are in food tech. You're in startups. You're transitioning into marketing, leveraging a lot of your existing skills that were probably very transferable. What? Where did you take that next?
0: Yeah. So was there for like almost two years, I think, and then you know, just from living in San Francisco and everything, and just there's a lot of opportunity in the Bay Area. And so, you know, I, I think it's I think it's healthy to always, for all employees, to have a pulse on the industry and to look at other opportunities as they might come up. I, d- I just think it's really important. Either for one, you realize, I want to work at this other company. Or two, you realize, I love where I am. Like, I don't want to leave yet or my work isn't finished here and I'm, and I'm great here. So, you know, kind of kept a pulse on that and was starting to apply for other jobs that I thought were interesting and... I ended up I ended up applying at LinkedIn, got rejected, and the hiring, the hiring manager was like, "Hey, let's stay in touch, you know, you seem great. Would love to, you know, stay in touch in general." And she added me, she added me on LinkedIn. And I just thought that was really nice, right? I'm like, "Oh, it's a nice thing for her to say." And and I both didn't take it seriously but also appreciated it. You know, we're like, I, th- I thought she was genuinely being kind and nice, but it also was like, I mean, it doesn't mean we're best friends. Like it's fine. <laughs> but then shortly thereafter, she ended up recommending me for a role over at Fitbit. And she was like, hey, you know, Fitbit is hiring for their B2B marketing team. I think you'd be a really good fit for it. You should definitely apply and then see if you could reach out to the hiring manager and let her know that, you know, that you heard about it through me. And I was like... That's super nice. Like, who does that? <laughs> Incredible person. So I did that and then applied at Fitbit, got to meet my, you know, the, the hiring manager there. She was wonderful. And it ended up just happening. I mean, it was a weird pivot, right, to go from food, food, D2C, snack startup, to pivoting into B2B SaaS, marketing to HR and benefits leaders, And, you know, that was the thing that I was unsure about in terms of, like, can I do this? I've never worked in B2B SaaS, but, you know, it's it's a great experience, right? And at the time, like, Fitbit was still pre-IPO, and it was, you know, one of those fast-growing startups that people were like, well, this is the next big place to work. So it just sort of became, like, I'd be crazy not to join and not to, like, try my hardest to get this opportunity. So that was that.
1: That's such a cool story because I feel like – you know, as much as I try to channel this kind of like stoic growth mindset of like every, every rejection is an opportunity for growth and learning. Like you literally had that like you got rejected from a job, but you clearly did such a good job in the process and putting your best foot forward that this person, for whatever reason, they couldn't hire you or couldn't make the case to hire you, but they recommended you somewhere else. I mean, was there anything about that that's like, repeatable or memorable about like how that came to be?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what I really appreciated about that, about that rejection, right, was that was a that I think that might have been the first time that I really learned, like, oh, sometimes, sometimes you know there it isn't a fit, and they actually do like you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like anybody who's been rejected has heard some version of like, oh, we think you're great, but we we're not hiring you, and that sucks, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, no one loves hearing that but this was a clear case of oh that was true she did like me she just didn't hire me or whatever it was right maybe maybe they had they knew someone else who had a a skill set that was more aligned with that job that that happens that's normal so it gave me a lot of hope in the sense that now maybe this is naive i don't know i tend to i i do tend to be I, I do tend to more so believe when um, hiring, hiring managers or recruiting teams say, here's why we didn't hire you or here, whatever it is. I tend to be like, oh, okay, that probably is true if, if they tell you, right? So not everyone tells you.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And also there's a certain point of just like suspending disbelief for mental health. It's like, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. I could choose to not believe it and I could like go down this like self-loathing path, but it's like. You're not gonna get much out of that either. It's like, okay, cool. Let me take that at face value. And because progress and forward momentum, I think, is ultimately everything when it comes to being excited about our career. Totally. Right, so you were at yeah. Fitbit for if your LinkedIn is right, which I'm assuming yes. It was around yes. four and a half years. It was kind of one of your yeah. longer stints uh at a company. So I'm assuming you built your B2B chops, you learned a lot about SaaS, probably did a lot, bunch of different things there. But um, how did, what did that lead to next?
0: Yeah, so well, over at Fitbit, I ended up getting laid off. There was a round of layoffs in when was it? 2018, I guess, and I was part of that. That was rough to deal with, right? And I mean, no one likes being laid off. Most people don't, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. So that that was that was hard, right? Because I had. I had spent so much time there and it was just weird, right? It's weird to go from mm-hmm. thinking about like, oh, here are all things that I need to do and like got to schedule this, got to make that, got to do that meeting, whatever it is, and then you know, laid off, doesn't matter, give us your laptop. Like that was, I mean, I don't know if I'm qualified to say this, but I'll try it out anyway. I feel like trauma is a spectrum and I think it's traumatic to get laid off. I think- sure is it the worst thing that can ha- that can happen to anybody? Yes or no, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. different.
1: And I think context matters a lot also. Like, mm-hmm. where are you in your life? Are you living totally. paycheck to paycheck? Like, there's just a lot of things. And I think with careers, we all project like our situation. It's like, I've got a lot mm-hmm. of savings, so it's not a big deal. It's like, mm-hmm. but I don't. So it was a big deal. Or, yeah. you know, so I think I, I completely agree with you.
0: Yeah. So it was traumatic in that sense. And I think for for months I still had nightmares about like just waking up in a cold sweat about like oh I didn't schedule that blog post or I didn't proofread that email like and I'm sure I'm not alone in that regard but that was kind of hard to deal with and for the stage of life I was in you know I had a 4 month old baby and it was a weird combination of feeling like well I'm glad that I get more time with my baby but Now it's also like, wait, I don't, now I have to figure out how to make money or like get another job. Like, because now I'm responsible for someone (laughs) and my child didn't ask for this. (laughs) So I think I, at that point, I kind of used that time back to, you know, to be more present, well, literally more present for my son and to kind of keep house, so to speak, and then spent that year um, doing more consulting work. So then it was like then it kind of worked out, right? Because it was like, okay, I don't have a forty-hour work week anymore. I can just take on projects as I get them, space out my unemployment, you know, be a little bit more aggressive about saving, or you know, not spending too. Much. Obviously, my my you know my husband still had his job, so we were we weren't exactly worried about where our next meal was coming from. But you know, it it was a, it was a an income hit. So you know, spent that year doing some consulting work, trying to really figure out next steps and like what I wanted to be doing. And I think at that point I was, I was more in the the mindset of, you know, I, you know, want to work with good people. I want to have fun at work again. I, you know, want to try something a little bit different. Maybe I'll go back to B2C marketing. And then I ended up going in-house as one of my clients at Liftopia, the ski, ski lift ticket company. And that was, you know, that was great. I mean, I, I loved my coworkers. It was a good experience, right? It was a lot of fun to work at Liftopia. But after a few months, the pandemic hit. <laughs> mm. And, you know, and Liftopia was, I guess I would just call it like, The Wikipedia of, not Wikipedia, sorry, Expedia of ski lift tickets. So B2C market, really fun and interesting challenges in sort of in that subset of travel. Super interesting. And anyway, so pandemic started and ski areas closed quickly. And then most of us had to get furloughed because most people in the pandemic did, right? So that was when I had to kind of refocus to, okay, now it's furloughed. All right. This has happened before. I, I I get this. I I know what to do. <laughs> Started my job hunt again, and then ended up working at uh, Growth Machine, the SEO and content agency.
1: And how did you find that that role?
0: So that role came because I was following the founder of Growth Machine, Nat Eliason, on like Twitter. I subscribed to his newsletter, which was at the time I think it was maybe the only newsletter I read. I just really enjoyed the Monday Medley that I learned something new each time that was super interesting and well-written. Um, I just really respected Nat's work and started listening to the Growth Machine Marketing Podcast, really liked what he was doing, what he and the team were doing. And when I saw they were hiring for a head of content role, I was like, wait, I can do that. And then I I applied. I applied and I think I also found a mutual friend between Nat and I. And then I asked a mutual friend if they, if they would broker the intro. And then from there, you know, interviewed, did the project, was a great mutual fit and I was just super excited to join.
1: And so then began your kind of journey into the world of SEO and like content and more like content-based acquisition or like content ba- I mean, you were doing content marketing before, but like what did that unlock from from going there?
0: I really like how you put that content-based acquisition. That's exactly what it was, right? Because, you know, if you, for an agency, like- I think you could make the case that a lot of agencies are the same. It's a pretty commoditized industry. A lot of them basically do the same thing, but you hire each one based on like the reputation, culture, if you trust them, those kinds of things, right? So then the content that I created ended up being more, not not so much SEO driven, right? Because if you, if you want to, if you you know, if you were to Google how to do SEO, of course everyone's gonna look at Moz first, <laughs> as they should. They don't need to learn it from me. I started creating content around like our approach or growth machines approach to managing content for companies or like how to approach link building and those types of things in content marketing. And then then, you know, in joining growth machine, you know, I, part of the role was sort of to build a personal brand to be able to kind of acquire customers on a more organic level. Right. Because again, agency, like you're not going to run Facebook ads. I mean, some people do probably do, and maybe that works for them. But that wasn't the way we were gonna go about customer acquisition. It became, it just made more sense to figure out an organic growth channel. The cha- that channel being me <laughs> and my <laughs> personal like Twitter. And then, you know, uh, hosting the podcast, uh, launching a YouTube channel, and then just creating more of that content. What did, how did you say a uh, content acquisition or content?
1: Content-based acquisition. Content-based acquisition, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like with content marketing, a lot of times it's like increase awareness it's a great really cool we increase awareness but it's ultimately not getting like the right kind of traffic or behavior which then ends up putting pressure on it that's a pretty cool like meta role to be the content marketer for a company that sells content marketing
0: yeah it was a lot of fun it was i mean it was ev- it was even more fun than i thought it was going to be so it was it was a great opportunity great company to work for and i was like and, and you know i mean I was also like just so proud of the work that we did at, at for our clients. Loved, loved my coworkers there and yeah.
1: And so while you were there, you did something that I think a lot of people are talking about now. It's more at the forefront. We started off with saying my daughter wanted to be a YouTuber was building your personal brand. And I'm curious to know you know, now you've got a tremendous following, you know, I make sure I catch everything you put out because it's so insightful and so thoughtful and so helpful you've built this brand and now it goes with you even though you did it sort of for your job but now that belongs to you so I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your sort of more current thoughts on personal brand building because some people might even find like that to be like pretentious we all sort of get these funny feelings about words so like ignoring what it's called but that you have these assets that belong to you that like, that go with you as you go forward in your career
0: Yeah I mean I I think more people should be thinking about their personal brand. Maybe don't call it – yeah, you don't have to call it that, right? Because – and everyone has their own definition of it, right? But I think maybe my definition for it might be something like reputation at scale. Mm-hmm. Like it's the way others perceive you. It's the way that you choose to be present yourself. And I wish more people would do it because it's the best way to create some leverage for yourself and to increase your chances of luck right? Because I think, I think, you know, I mean, I've been around long enough to know that a lot of career opportunities, it's partly hard work and getting to the point of like, being a, you know, being an option for whatever opportunity. But a lot of it is just, it's luck, right? It's like being lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time. And if you are consciously or you know purposefully building your brand, you're setting yourself up for that kind of luck. and you're, set, you're and you're also just kind of like putting that beacon out there, right? For mm-hmm. here's who I am, here's what I'm about, here's what I'm looking for. and more people know where to find you or why they should find you. Um, and I don't even think about it like you don't have to have a massive audience to benefit from having a personal brand. Like so my current job, Spark Toro. I work with the founder of Moz, with Rand Fishkin, who, like, invented SEO best practices, <laughs> right? It's, like, he's a legend. But when when we we met through Twitter, and it wasn't even like I had, I didn't, I mean, I had a following, but I think I had around 10,000 followers, which is, like, it is some, something, but, it, you know, it's not like you have to have a like 50,000 followers or 100,000 followers in order to, in order to get any meaningful opportunities, right? Sometimes it's just the act of putting yourself out there and being found, but yeah.
1: And, and engaging. And I think a lot of people think that they just like put content out there and like people come. But I would imagine, I mean, even like what you did with, with Nate, right? You, you subscribed Nat, you, you subscribed to his newsletter. I would imagine at some point you wrote him and like you took a, you know, same when you were doing those cold emails, looking for jobs, That seems like what I've seen as a pattern is that you were willing to just kind of like put something out there with, you know, zero expectations, but knowing that if you did it enough times, you know, it might work and that that continued to build your confidence in doing it again and again.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: And what would, like, what would you say to people who get sort of stuck in that process? Like, oh, but what if they're not going to write me back? Or what if, you know, what if I have a typo or, you know, I feel like we've got this analysis paralysis where we're allowed, like we, we box ourselves into like inaction out of fear, rejection, or perfection or who, for any number of reasons but what advice would you have for folks that find themselves preventing themselves from taking action
0: um, so i'm not really a quote person i'll first that's the caveat but so but that kind of means that there are very few quotes that stick with me and one of the ones that sticks with me is it's a charlie munger quote which is the best way to get what you want is to deserve it and that resonates with me because I feel like that explains a lot of my career, which is kind of equal parts, I guess, working hard and working smart and getting lucky, right? Like, I think if, as as we're talking through all of it, like through my career history, I feel like a major theme is luck. Like, maybe anyone listening to this is thinking, gosh, this woman got so lucky all these times throughout her career. And I absolutely agree. I did get lucky. But... I also set myself up for that. Like in the opportunity for Growth Machine, it was head of content role. It it was a role that I could do, right? It was, I had been running content for teams for like eight years at that point. So I was qualified for the job. I could do it. And I got lucky by having a mutual acquaintance who could broker the intro. And who knows, maybe even if I didn't do that, And if I cold emailed Nat, maybe I still, maybe I still would have gotten the job. I I don't know. Cause it, it wasn't like Nat. Oh, great. Zach introduced us. You're hired, right? Like I still interviewed. I still met the team. I still did the project. We still had negotiations. So yeah. So I would just say work, work smart, like work for, like build the skills that you need for the job that you want. And then try to set yourself up for for, for luck.
1: Amanda, this was awesome. Thank you. There's so much to learn from your career. How can folks follow along with all the incredible things that you put out into the world?
0: Thank you. Um, Yeah, if you want to follow me and like what I do, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Amanda Nat and subscribe to my twice a month newsletter called The Menu at AmandaNat.com. I write about marketing, creativity, and original recipes and then if you want to level up your marketing strategy check out Sparktoro. We help you do audience research at scale or instantly and we basically through Sparktoro you can better you can find all the ways that augment your marketing strategy without the metric without the sort of sales or performance driven piece. It's a good, it's a good complement to all that stuff. So Terrible pitch, but there you go. (laughs) I'm signed up for all
1: of them, and I think they're all incredible. We will link to them in the show notes wherever you're watching or listening. But Amanda, thank you so, so much. Like I said, I was so excited when you wrote me back, and I can't believe I got to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much for sharing your career with us.
0: I was so excited that you reached out. So thank you, Dave.
1: All right. Talk soon. And that's it for this episode of Nonlinear. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, and rate us wherever you're listening to the show. You can learn more about Teal on our website, tealhq.com. That's Teal like the color, T-E-A-L-H-Q.com. Or follow us on social media at Teal underscore HQ. Thank you so much for joining us and please tune back in to keep hearing about how we make the decisions that shape our career. The Teal Career Paths podcast is produced by Rainbow Creative with senior producer Matthew Jones and editor and associate producer Drew McPowell. You can find more information on them at rainbowcreative.co. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.